You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. So we are here at the 2009 PRSA International Conference, and uh, I am uh, very pleased to be seated with... uh, a 27-year retired Rear Admiral uh, from the U.S. Navy. Um, he is also uh, a former spokesperson for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, he was in service to Army General uh, Hugh Shelton. He was in service to Air Force General Dick Myers. Um, in addition to that, uh, when he retired, uh, he was with the National Counterterrorism Council. Uh, He has served uh, in U.S. Special Ops. Uh, Today he is the president of Military.com. He's here talking about how military uh, PAOs can apply their skills and experience to uh, careers in the public sector. Uh, I am pleased to have him with me on this podcast. Uh, So uh, thank you for joining me, T.L. McCreary. Thanks. I appreciate being here. And, of course, it's only appropriate. You're in the one of the largest Navy home ports in, uh, in all the world. So it's great to be here. How do you become a rear admiral? How do you pull that? First of all, what is a rear admiral and how do you become one? Well, uh, it's, it's a one-star or two-star admiral in the Navy. And uh, you do it through a career of service and a little bit of luck. Uh, so it's, uh, it's been great. I've been an officer in the public affairs community for the Navy for 25 of the 27 years. And there's only one rear admiral job in the Navy in that community, and I was lucky enough and honored enough to be able to hold that post. So first question, speaking truth to power. You're in these positions where you've got information, you have to provide advice, probably a sh- you probably have access to these people for a very short period of time. Somehow you've got to make an impression on them that's going to get them to act the way you want them to act. Well, it, it's really true because it's, it's not just an issue of truth. It's an issue of truth. It's an issue of trust. And an, it's an issue of transparency. Because in the military... Since you are the one dealing with the field of communication, it's not just the communication from the military to the public. It's trying to let the military leadership understand what's going out in the public, what's in the world, and bringing that inside. So there are times when you have to look at them and say, it's a great idea, boss, but you know how this is going to be received, and it just won't make sense to the public. Uh, Most of the senior military leaderships today probably says, you know, hey, look, uh, I travel everywhere I go with two people, the lawyer and the public affairs officer, because quite frankly, they're the ones that generally have to tell them the truth. But, I mean, these people that you're counseling and giving advice to, they're making all sorts of decisions, many of them which do not involve external communications. That's correct. That's, a, that's just a fraction of what they're looking at. It's just, a, it's just a very small fraction, but you have to determine, since they're making the decisions on behalf of the nation, there does require some explanation to the public because, after all, that's who the military and that's who the civilian leadership of the Defense Department works for. Now, I know you were the um, spokesperson for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs during 9-11. That's correct. Tell me about your experience. Well... 
I was in the building. I was in the Pentagon on 9-11, and uh, my boss, General Hugh Shelton, at the time was on his way to a NATO conference. And, just, just uh, let me just interject for a moment here, because I've been in the Pentagon and seen the memorial where the plane entered the building. Where were you seated in comparison to that? I was on completely opposite side of the building. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know the plane hit uh, when it hit. It was only afterwards when people were running through the building saying we were hit that I did I know that that actually occurred. But uh, so I was there that and day. And when you first got that information, what went through your mind? Well, I think, in, in a way, quite frankly, I kind of expected that we could be a potential target after the towers were hit. And uh, we talked about it. As a matter of fact, we were trying to get aircraft up over Washington, D.C., just in case. So I guess once the surprise of the initial attack wore off, it really wasn't surprising that the Pentagon itself got hit. Uh, and there just wasn't a lot you could do about it, given the defensive situation at the time. But uh, I sent most of my folks out of the building, made sure they were okay, sent them up to an alternate command site in case we had to close the Pentagon, and then went inside the National Military Command Center for the rest of the day in the Pentagon. I was sitting there with uh, General Myers, was the vice chairman at the time, and Secretary Rumsfeld, and his spokesman, Victoria Clark, and uh, spent the day with them trying to make sure when we knew something, we got it out to... A guy named uh, Craig Quigley, Admiral Craig Quigley, who was uh, the assistant spokesman for the Department of Defense, and he would relay it to the media outside the Pentagon. So it was a very interesting day. What's going through your head? I mean, you're you're in there in this National Control Center, and I got to think it's it's a pressure cooker in there. Well, you got a lot of information coming at you, but you know, after 25 years in the military, you're kind of trained for. Well, we've never crisis. seen anything like this. Yeah, but in a, in a battle, in a war, you fire on a ship. I mean, there are different types of pressures, but it's still it's your training that takes over. And I think while you're going through it, you really aren't focusing on the disaster itself. You're focusing on the next steps. What do you do? How do you get the information out for people to be safe? What's the next step? On and on and on and on. And quite frankly, uh, as we move through the day, one of the big issues became how do we let the American people know that its military is still operating, that its military chain of command is still functioning, and that we are, in fact, still in the Pentagon doing our job. And how do you do that without, you know, driving people to panic? Well, I think how you do it is you just uh, have to go out and that night, Secretary Rumsfeld and General Shelton went on the podium from the Pentagon, said, hey, here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. And uh, as soon as we find out who's responsible for the attacks, uh, we'll respond accordingly. Was there anything unusual you learned from that experience that was unlike any other uh, major crisis, emergency, disaster situation that you handled communications for? I think it's really um, a difference only in terms of scope. Because in most crises, you have mid-level players playing in the fleet or, or wherever, and they're, they're pretty senior for that organization. But here you're talking about a national crisis. So you're sitting in the National Military Command Center. The vice president is on the line from the White House. You know, the Secretary of State is on the line from the State Department. Secretary of Defense, of course, is sitting right there with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And you're discussing things like, 
if there's another airplane that comes close, do you shoot it down with civilians aboard? Uh, you know, everything, though, is focused on the crisis at the moment. It's not on, you know, what happened. There'll be time for that investigation. It's how do we repair what we've got right now? How do we look at the next steps? What do we do next once we find out who's responsible? You know, who do we need to get working on that to, to take the next and future steps? Well, seeing as how there's going to be more media out there that want to talk to you during a time like that than you have time to actually talk to, how do you decide who, which media requests to respond to and which ones not to yeah, respond to? It, in the heat of the moment, you really don't take any. What you do is you set up a press center. And we set it up off-site over at, uh, on Navy property, just about uh, 500 yards from the Pentagon. So it overlooked the Pentagon. There was uh, an admiral out there. His name was Craig Quigley, who was the uh, Tory Clark's deputy spokesperson for DOD. And what we did is we just occasionally fed him an update on what we knew. And he gave us, you know, what questions he was getting from the National Press Corps. And we'd answer them best we could. Then that night, of course, you're putting on your principals. You're putting on the Secretary of Defense. You're putting on the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs in front of the Pentagon Press Corps. And so it's all there at once. It's, it's not picking and choosing who's calling you at the moment. You, you have to do it in mass. A little bit different than when we started in Afghanistan and every day in Iraq. You have media embedded there. You have hundreds of media in the Pentagon, and, and everybody wants a different angle. And then you have to just do your best to handle the, the, the group. But in a, in a crisis event like that, you establish a central location, so you don't have to pick and choose. They can come to you. Now, I, um, three weeks later, we were in Afghanistan. That's correct. Um, I think you told me October 2001. That's correct. And uh, tell, tell me about the first 90 days uh, in Afghanistan. Well, you know, it was interesting. Um, <clears throat> a lot of planning was done, obviously, in secrecy so that there wouldn't be a lot known about when or where we were going in. And one of the things both uh, Tory Clark and I came up with is, look, it's nice that we're going to conduct this attack on Sunday, but, you know, this is uh, six days before, and if you think we're going to respond to an attack on our country and not have someone there to tell the story, we're going to be eaten alive. So we had to come up with a press plan to embark pools of media without tipping our hand. And uh, we had about a three-day window to put it all together. And so it was very quick. It was going out to people you trust and saying, look, going to have to embargo some information. We want to give you a chance to cover what we're going to do. Uh, but there absolutely can't be any word of it. And uh, are you going to get people killed? And I think when you talk to the press like that, they're pretty understanding. They, quite frankly, all marshaled in uh, Bahrain. Uh, we got them, snuck them out to two aircraft carriers. Uh, we flew some of them over to some of the ships that fired Tomahawk missiles. And we had coverage, if you remember, the first couple days in Afghanistan when our forces actually launched, started the aerial attack. Uh, so I think, you know, you have to be a part of that planning. Uh, it is strategic planning. Uh, it is the communicators engaged and involved. And in the first 90 days, every step of the operation, you have to figure out how you're going to have the press there, how you're going to allow them to cover it, what the logistics are behind it, 
and what the ground rules are that will, A, protect your troops, yet, B, inform the American public. The um, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs is, uh, well, I think it's fair to say a very glamorous title. <laughs> and uh, there are legends about how these, how these guys are hand-picked for just having, you know, the best of everything. What, what insight can you give us into, you know, what makes a chairman of the Joint Chiefs different from other people? Well, I think, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, there's lots of four-star admirals and generals. And I think where the chairman comes in is having to take all the service issues from not just the service he's originally from, but all of them, be able to bring that all in, boil it down to some clear, concise military advice, then then he can offer the senior leadership of the country because that is his primary role to offer advice to the president, the secretary of defense, and actually the entire National Security Council is if this is the mission you want to give us, this is our best military advice on how to carry that out. But it's not a decision-making position. Remember, our United States military under the Constitution is under civilian control. There are two national command authorities and only two, the President and the Secretary of Defense. And those two have the only right in our government to make the operational decisions and actually direct that large operations happen. So the chairman's job is to ensure that they understand the risks of action or the risk of inaction and how to best accomplish the mission that they've been given by the leadership. Now, you were also uh, the uh, spokesperson for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, during the Iraqi, uh, Operation Iraqi F- Freedom. Yes, during the first, yeah, I, I transferred out of the chairman's office about 90 days into that operation. But yes, the first 90 days and all the planning up to it. And apparently you were the rascal who came up with this plan to embed journalists. Am I right about that? uh, Well, my office was responsible for writing the plan, and uh, I think everybody had the idea that media embeds were the way to go. Navy had always taken, you know, the Navy's always over the horizon, right? So unless you bring the news media out to the Navy, nobody ever sees what the Navy does. So embedding media is something we naturally do. A little more foreign to the Army. Uh, not so formed to the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps is kind of part of the Department of the Navy. Uh, they call it the Men's Department, of course, and a little little service rivalry there. But uh, I think everybody came together and said for something like this, particularly where the nation is split over whether it's the right thing to do or not, Showing what's going on, showing our forces in harm's way is, is really important. Let me tell you why we did it, if I, if I may. Um, from my standpoint, we knew Saddam Hussein and his regime uh, was extremely good at propaganda. And I felt the only way to counter that propaganda first was to have an independent observer on scene who would report what they saw, good or bad, first. Because once they reported, 
responsible international journalist, it's hard for anybody else to spin or take their own approach or come in with lies in case of some level of propaganda about what happened. My boss at the time, General Myers, had a little different point of view. He understood the operational issues, but he also said, you know, I served in Vietnam. And when I came home from Vietnam, we were briefed at the base we arrived not to go out in town with our uniforms on. We were briefed that we needed to be in civilian clothes because the nation had, in fact, mixed the policy of Vietnam up with what the military was doing. So military people in uniform were being spit on and had things thrown at them and were never welcomed back. General Myers' point was, if we put an independent observer out there watching what our men and women are doing every day, all the time, the American people will be watching their sons and daughters do things that are just plain heroic and plain scary. And if that doesn't separate the issues of what the men and women do from the policy, then I don't know what else will. So he had great foresight in this that as a PR professional, I should have did thought he, about, but he, he was the one who, who brought that out and said we he need must to... Have, he must have gotten some friction from someone in that national well, briefing room that raised their hand and said, <laughs> my God, these guys are going to compromise operational security, as Geraldo Rivera did. Well, actually, yeah, but, you know, Geraldo wasn't embedded media at the time he did that. He was, he came in separately. One of the forces over there just kind of let him ride along. However... All of that said, we had we had 700 media in bed and only two compromised security, and and in a pretty small way, quite frankly, because you know the speed of battle was so quick that a lot of that stuff is perishable. That said, we put a lot of ground rules in place about what they could and couldn't report, and almost uh, all the media signed up for it. And of course, if they didn't, they couldn't go, but uh, uh, lived up to it. We presented this to the Secretary of Defense, and it took him a couple days to decide. But he signed the message, and he agreed, and Myers agreed. Quite frankly, the, the countervailing, uh, the pushback, if you will, came from the White House. Uh, they thought we were taking a huge risk, and, uh, and we just stuck with it and said, look, this isn't about the policy. This is about the men and women who serve and the right of the American people to see how they perform and what they do. And uh, we just went down that road. The White House said, okay, uh, your risk, but we'll live with it. And uh, I think it turned out great. Um, where we made the mistake, and quite frankly, we made a mistake, as soon as we took Baghdad, uh, the Army particularly, but a couple of the services decided to unembed media, and a lot of the media decided to uh, kind of go their own way. And I think as a result of that, what happened is there was no one at that point telling the story of what the troops were doing after Baghdad was taken. Everybody was out in the hinterlands reporting on very small soda straw like views of what was going on and 
our media center was behind a closed wall while the media were out in town and they weren't going down there and talking to them. So shame on us. I think we had a great plan up through the first 90 days. Baghdad, the taking of Baghdad happened so quickly that we couldn't flex quick enough and do the right thing after that. And I think at that point, um, you know, we, of course, got policy blowback, but we also got blowback because people weren't seeing both sides of the story again. They were only seeing, you know, out in town side. They weren't seeing it from the military perspective as well. So shame on us. Now, I know you're the president of Military.com, which is a subsidiary of Monster. That's great. And this is a community where service members, uh, retired and active, can get information about uh, benefits and programs and also help them apply their uh, skills uh, to the commercial sector. So... Um, you know, when I, when I have met many of the uh, officers, particularly, and sometimes enlisted uh, service members as well in the armed forces, I have to say I'm usually really impressed by how on it they are. And so you got to think that, you know, these people would be really in demand by people who are recruiting and looking to fill positions. I mean, can you give us maybe your top tips for a service member that's coming off of active duty and looking to find a job? in the private sector. Sure. But you notice you came to that conclusion about military members after you met several of them. In this day and age, not very many civilians have military experience or background, so they don't know what they do. And quite frankly, many in the public relations industry don't have an inner relationship with the military, so they're always fumbling around at what skills translate and, and what does not. So the, the biggest thing for the military member is, you know, the responsibility to find a job primarily rests on the seeker. And the job seeker, either the retiring military member or the person getting out, really has to spend some time educating themselves on, okay, what are the skill sets that are desired out in the civilian community? How do they relate to the skill sets that I have? And just like any news story or anything else, how do I tell the story about how those skill sets translate into what they do? With crisis communication, it's pretty easy because, you know, let's face it. I mean, accidents, incidents, all kinds of things happen in the military. It's a dangerous business where we really learn how to deal with crises very well. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that the military could probably write the book on crisis communication over any other organization in the world. You would think. Uh, you take a look at Fort Hood. I mean, the tragedy uh, with those uh, men and women being killed, soldiers being killed. Uh, the communication was on it. They dealt with a deluge of media. They dealt with communication to the troops. They dealt with communication to the family. I mean, it just went through a very, very set process because they always plan for potential catastrophes because it's a dangerous business we're in. So I, I think in crisis communication, it's pretty easy. Some of the things that I don't think civilian practitioners realize about the military, though, is there a large group of military that talk to trade publications. And so they do talk to the publications of the business. And I think if somebody's in the entertainment business, they say, you know, I don't need somebody who can talk to the New York Times or anybody else. 
I need somebody who can talk to Entertainment Weekly, or I need somebody who can talk to Billboard, or I need somebody who can, you know, I need somebody who can focus on the trades. Well, guess what? There is a huge number of trades that cover the military for the equipment, uh, you know, for all of our gear. There's a huge number of trades that cover personnel and personnel issues. There's a huge number of trades that cover congressional and congressional issues. So, you know, people have to be able to tell that story. Look, just because I am really up on media relations and I've dealt, yes, with the national and international media, which may not be what, you know, Business X does, I still also know how to deal with trades related to that business because I do it every day. You know, it's, it's just not usually seen because it's not a mass media. Somebody practicing in a different industry wouldn't see that. The only area where mostly the only or the biggest area where a military member is kind of behind a civilian practitioner is Sarbanes-Oxley and what you make public about your business because the military is a public corporation owned by its citizens and therefore you know you're always dealing in a public domain in a business particularly one that's publicly traded there are issues behind what you say about the status of the business or, or what's going on that affects traders and analysts and people who own stock. And there's a little nuance there that, quite frankly, in the military you never see until you get into the civilian world. So that's not ten. That's really about three things, three or four things. But that's the biggest area that a military member really has to seek out and at least understand but I tell you, they're quick learners, and anybody who brings them on, they can teach them that in a heartbeat. You know, most of the jobs in this country are with small businesses. Correct. But, you know, you would think, and I, I would like to hear what you think about this, you would think that uh, a former service member would really be well-suited to perform at a big organization versus a more entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial small organization. Is that the case? I don't think that's the case at all because, because, quite frankly, while we are a big organization, we're divided into hundreds of commands. And you might be a public affairs officer for a very small command of 100 people or 50 people. And in that job, you have to know it all. You have to, you have to be both the technician and the manager. You have to write the press releases and release them. What if it's only three people? Well, now that's a different, uh, that's a different story. But I tell you, look. What if it's just me and my brother and we're looking for some help? There you go. The Navy has 400,000 people. There are 220 public affairs officers in the Navy. So figure out how much self-reliance they need to be no matter where they are. So they, they're used to being out in the trenches and doing it all themselves, <clears throat> and they can operate independently. But at the same time, within their own commands, they have immediate access to the C-suite. So I think they can span the range of businesses, and they're very self-sufficient. They don't have, you know, our public affairs officers don't have to go to Washington and say, Mother, may I? They have authority to make decisions on what's releasable and, not, and what's not releasable within guidelines right on the spot. They can make them. They can push. They can draw support. They can get information out, whatever they need to do. So I think they cross every size business. 
retired Rear Admiral T.L. McCreary, United States Navy. Thank you for joining us. Well, you're welcome, and thanks for having me. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.